You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, if you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 is where we're going to begin this morning. And thank you guys for leading us this morning. It was really great. Genesis chapter 2. So we are jumping back into a set of sermons that we have called Issues. We've been in here for um, a couple of months now. And uh, today we are tackling what, um, when I just kind of work through what is this set of sermons going to contain, um, this is the day that is obviously the most difficult to deal with, um, especially just culturally. It's the issue of homosexuality. Now this is just where, when I just say that, I just take a deep breath and I'm praying for grace for us today. For you, for me, for all of us, for our church family, for our culture at large. And so obviously this is a very explosive issue. The cultural shift has been underway for um, a really long time in our country. And um, that cultural you know, shift was really ratified and stamped in June as the Supreme Court um, legislated and kind of legalized same-sex marriage in all 50 states. And so this is obviously an issue that is here to stay. It's not going away. It's here to stay. And so Christians have to think through this. Um, you know, for the first time in American history, there's a majority of people in the United States right now who would agree with and, and say I'm favorable toward uh, same-sex marriage. Um, I, the statistic is somewhere between 54 and 60% of people in America right now would, would be favorable to that. And, you know, one thing that I think is interesting to note is that um, the younger a person is, the more likely that person is to be favorable toward it. So if you're 30 and down, there is a three in four chance that you would be favorable toward same-sex marriage. So I think it's just interesting to note just how the generational gaps um, influence and affect how we feel about this issue. Now, let me just take a step back and and just clarify what my goal is in a morning like this. Uh, My goal is to equip you. I'm a pastor. If you call Stonegate your home, I'm one of your pastors. And this is obviously a very difficult issue that we need to get inside of the Bible and to think these issues through. So that's my goal with us this morning is to help you, to help us as a church family, to think through this issue. And and the reason being is because I talk to pastors all the time, and this is like one of those um, issues, I, I, I would almost call it like a hot potato issue. That it's like pastors are just, if that's in your hand, you're trying to get that out of your hand as fast as you can. You're trying not to get caught in a situation where you have to talk about this. And I just know that if there's that sort of confusion and just in the circle of pastors, that has to be exponentially even deeper, that confusion, in a pew um, with people who aren't dealing with these things on a consistent sort of basis. And so my goal is to help us think this through. And and I want you to hear this statement just right off the get-go. My goal for our church family is not just that we would have strong biblical convictions, It's that paired with biblical convictions, we would also have compassion that would be reflected in the dying love of a Savior. So I just want you to hear that, that with biblical convictions, if all we have is biblical convictions, we are going to maim people with truth. But it's with biblical conviction paired with compassion seen in a dying Savior. It's when those two things come together that we can actually be helpful to people. And that's my goal for us to help us think the issue through so we can have biblical convictions matched with great compassion so that we can actually be helpful as a church family. So with that said, um, here are the two kind of points, the two big kind of categories I want to kind of work in today. 
Um, first one is, what does the Bible say about this issue? Second one is, how, as a church, can we respond better than the church has traditionally responded to this issue? So what does the Bible say about it? And then how can we respond in a good way as a church family to this particular issue? Um, okay, so let me just start by giving a context for the Bible before we look at individual passages. Um, and I just want to start by acknowledging that the Bible is not primarily about homosexuality. It's not primarily about sexuality in general. It's not primarily about marriage. It's not primarily about parenting. It's not primarily about all of those things because it's primarily about Jesus. That's what the Bible is primarily about. So the storyline of the Bible starts in Genesis 1 and 2. God created um, our first parents, Adam and Eve. He put them in a garden. He put them into a world that he created and cultivated to make inhabitable. It was a beautiful world. It was a great world. It was, it was the world as it should be. He sets our first parents in the garden, Adam and Eve, and it is going great. They are living the sort of life that they are designed to live with God in harmony with creation, in harmony with themselves. All of that is going great. But then you turn to Genesis chapter three and this great story instantly becomes a tragedy as our first parents bite into this you know, forbidden fruit. And what they found is that fruit bit back. It broke uh, not only God's good creation, it's one of the things that broke, it also broke how they relate to God. They are now under a curse from God. They are kicked out of God's presence, out of the Garden of Eden. But it also broke, listen to this, them in profound, complex, and very deep ways. Sin bit back in all of those sort of ways. And the storyline of the Bible is a big-hearted God looking at his rebellious sons and daughters and saying, I will do whatever it takes to redeem you, even at the cost of my beloved son. That's what the Bible is about. Now, this is where um, the kingdom of God imagery and theme throughout the Bible is really helpful for us. The, the kingdom imagery goes like this. Um, this world is broken. God sends his son, King Jesus, to this earth to usher in a new kingdom, a kingdom that will be safe for his sons and daughters, a kingdom that, that will bring all of these broken things back together, our, our relationship with creation, our relationship with God, our relationship with ourselves. It brings all of these things back together inside the kingdom of God. In Mark, the first words that Jesus announces are, how do we get into this kingdom? He, he's bringing a kingdom. How do we get into it? And he says, here's how you get in. It's through faith and repentance. When you put your faith in me, but by trusting my life, death, and resurrection, you enter into this kingdom. That, that is a picture of, of God the Father doing whatever it takes to, to rescue his rebellious sons and daughters, even at the cost of his beloved son. Okay, now, if that is the major storyline of the Bible, I want you to see in that kingdom theme, if that's the major storyline of the Bible, it is clear that the Bible is not primarily about sexuality, about parenting, about your work, about any of those things. It is about Jesus. It's about coming into the kingdom of Jesus. But when we come into the kingdom of Jesus, Jesus reintroduces us to a new ethic, to a new way of seeing and acting and believing that would conform to his kingdom, to the king of his kingdom and would conform to what it means for human beings to flourish. Like God created this thing. He knows what it means for a human being to flourish. And so in coming into this kingdom, we are coming into to, to the king of this kingdom's new set of ethics, his new set of rules. He's, he's acclimating us to what it means to be a follower of his. And this way of following him leads to our flourishing. So in that way, the Bible is not about parenting. It's not about your money. It's not about sexuality. It's not about any of those things. But the main issue of the Bible, Jesus, listen to this, affects all of those things. Are you hearing that? The Bible is not about any of those things. It's about Jesus. But Jesus, when we come into his kingdom, has something to say about every one of those issues, including our sexuality. 
So what does the Bible say about our sexuality? Let me just run through several passages with you. This is obviously not gonna be a everything that could possibly be said is said sermon. We just don't have the time for that. But I wanna just try to give you an introduction to and just to get the conversation started among our church family. So we'll start in Genesis chapter two. Genesis chapter two. So the Lord has created uh, the world. He has uh, cultivated the world where it's inhabitable. He's created Adam. And then you get to Genesis chapter two, verse 18. And the Bible says this. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. So I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. I just want you to point out a couple of things here before we keep reading in this passage. Um, I want you to, to notice that the Lord addressed what he called not good in creation. The only thing not good is that man was alone. And he addressed that issue not by creating another man for Adam, but by creating a woman for Adam. Now, this woman was a compliment for Adam. She's made like him in deep and profound ways, mainly that she is made in the image of God. She is not a horse. She's not a dog. She's not any, she's a human being made of the same essence and same stuff that Adam was made of. So she's made alike him in very deep and profound ways in the image of God. And at the same time, she is unlike him in the right ways. She's like him in the right ways and unlike him in the right ways. She's a different example of the same kind of thing. That's the point that the, the Lord's making here. This is how the Lord addresses what, what is not good in his creation, namely Adam being alone. It's this complementarity that leads to such a profound unity between Adam and Eve, between man and woman. Now we keep reading in verse 23. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Now, from that point forward, between 23 and 24, the narrative takes a break, and it's no longer in the narrative. It zooms out of the narrative, goes wide angle, and is now addressing marriage in all times, in all places, in all cultures, and says this, verse 24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Point. Marriage isn't the creation of a government. Marriage is pre-government. It is the Lord in Genesis 2 who creates marriage and then defines marriage. Now, what is the, the Lord's definition of marriage? Let me give you a working definition. This will be on the screen for you. How could we define marriage out of Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2? We could define it like this. Marriage is one man and one woman for life that is consummated in complementary sexual union that ultimately can lead to reproduction and thus human flourishing. Let me just break that down into a couple of parts. One man and one woman. So two who are alike in the same ways. It's not a man or a woman and an animal. They're alike in the same ways and at the same time they are unlike in the right ways. So, they, so, so one man and one woman for life. So the, the, the framework for marriage is a covenantal relationship. 
It's an all-of-life relationship. Number three, it's consummated and complementary sexual union. Two people who are alike in beautiful ways, image of God, and who are unlike in beautiful ways, male and female. It's, marriage is the bringing together of those two complements. So consummated and complementary sexual union. Number four, that fourth part, can, that can lead to reproduction and thus human flourishing. Now that doesn't mean that every marriage to be a marriage, biblical marriage has to reproduce children. It doesn't mean that. It means it has to be of the, of the sort of nature, male and female, that, that the sort of nature that can reproduce. That's the issue. It's not that you have to, it means that it's the sort of nature that can and thus lead to human flourishing. Without children, human beings die. Like we become extinct. So it, it, you cannot lead to human flourishing with, without that. So what, what is marriage in Genesis 1 and, 2, 1 and 2? One man and one woman for life that is consummated and complementary sexual union that ultimately can lead to reproduction and thus human flourishing. Now, it doesn't take long to read forward in the narrative and see how sin has created every wrong bent form of marriage. So yes, that is forward in the Bible. But that does not negate that this is God's design for marriage, Genesis 1 and 2. Now, obviously, our culture has a much different view of marriage than that. Let, let me give you a cultural definition of marriage. This would be the working definition of marriage in our culture. And you can just see how these two have changed. According to culture, a marriage is a loving emotional bond whereby partners within, so within that bond, find their personal fulfillment and remain as long as they feel fulfilled. A loving emotional bond whereby partners within find their personal fulfillment and remain as long as they are feeling personally fulfilled. Okay, this is the definition of marriage that our culture has been working with. And hear me on this. That is not just like the last decade or two. That's been about the last half century. This is not a new thing in our culture. This, this functional definition has been in play for a good while. It was ratified in the late 1960s into the 70s with the no-fault divorce language. When that becomes a legalized way of divorcing. Back in the day, you actually had to have a reason legally to divorce that kind of like fits some biblical criteria, right? But, but, you know, late 1960s into the 70s, the whole framework for marriage changes from that of a covenantal relationship that's like a for-life relationship to it primarily being defined in its essence as personal fulfillment, that all changed with the no-fault divorce. Now, for me, that, that brings some clarity to two particular issues. And here's one of them. <coughs> with, with these definitions and how they have altered and changed in, in culture, it makes sense to me with this new definition of why a homosexual couple would be offended when someone else says that they could not marry. Like if this is our functional definition of marriage, a loving emotional bond whereby partners within find their fulfillment and remain as long as they feel fulfilled, if that's the cultural definition of marriage, if I were a homosexual and wanted to be married, I would have a problem with you saying no to me as well, if that's the functional definition in our culture. Now, here's the second kind of thing that this clarifies for me. What's ironic about that definition of marriage is that heterosexual couples are the ones who created it. Not homosexual couples. Heterosexual couples are the ones that laid the tracks for that definition of marriage. For it to leave its covenantal framework and with no fault divorce, it, it transfer over here to personal fulfillment. Heterosexuals are the ones that laid the tracks for that to happen. 
Heterosexual couples are the ones that laid the tracks for that view of the essence of marriage to change, have laid the tracks for now, this is where we are, we are reaping that now, to laid the tracks for us to be now in a culture where anyone who wants to be married can be married. And, and just the logic of that keeps going from there. It doesn't stop with that. As soon as you go to the logic of this, anyone can be married to anyone, it's anyone can be married to any number of anyone's. It, it keeps going from there. Now, here's the tragedy about the whole thing when it comes to this redefinition of marriage to being, you know, away from covenantal and primarily to personal fulfillment. The tragedy is that defining marriage in that way doesn't work for anyone. Marriage can't work when personal fulfillment is the highest aim of marriage. It has no shot of working for anyone. Now, let me just sum it up with this and we'll keep moving. As Christians, we, as people who have entered into the kingdom of Jesus, we don't have the option as Christians to define anything in our life however we want to define them. We have to come into the kingdom and ask the king of the kingdom, how do you define these things? And then we shift our life and, and, and alter our life according to his authority in our life. That's all of our issue as a Christian. And just take it out of sexuality and put it into any other area of your life. What it means to be a Christian and coming into the kingdom is we're saying, you're the king, we're the servants. It's your authority that counts, not our experience that counts. Okay, passage number two. Passage number one is Genesis chapter two. Here's passage number two, Leviticus chapter 18 and Leviticus 20. This will be on the screen for you. These two chapters say this. This is right in the middle of the kind of Mosaic law in the Old Testament. Leviticus 18 says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman, or with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Then Leviticus 20, verse 13. These both should be on the screen. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon us. Now, reading that in light of Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 and 2 are the announcement of, of what the ethic is in the kingdom of, of God. That's the announcement. Now, it, he doesn't have to go in and explain every little detail of that announcement in every moment where marriage is talked about or sexuality is talked about. But Genesis 1 and 2 becomes the backdrop from which we read everything else about sexuality in the Bible. And when you read Leviticus 18 on top of the backdrop of Genesis 1 and 2, it fits perfectly with Genesis 1 and 2. It's, it's reiterating what Genesis 1 and 2 would reiterate. Now, here is the pushback from those who want the Bible to affirm same-sex marriage. The pushback is, well, okay, it's interesting that you would just pick those couple of verses out of that chapter. That's interesting since there's like, don't eat shellfish in the same chapter. You know, if we're going to the Mosaic law in general, there's don't eat pork. It's just interesting to me that you would camp on this one and say, we're gonna keep this one about homosexuality, but we're not gonna keep the shellfish and the pork and all of that. That's interesting. That just seems like some selective reading. That, that's the pushback. Let me just give two quick responses to that. Um, first response is, you, when you're reading the Old Testament, especially the laws, you have to make sure you're dealing with the correct categories of what you're reading, okay? Correct categories. Now, up on the screen will be just a, a, a sampling of, of what I mean here. Um, on the screen, there should be two circles, maybe. Is it coming? Yep, there it is, two circles. Um, one circle, the larger one, is the category of clean or unclean. The smaller one is the category of sin. In the Old Testament, laws dealt with both being clean or unclean, and they dealt with things that were in particular sin, both of those. Now, the category of clean versus unclean is a bigger category in the Old Testament than the category of sin and what's not sin. Unclean, clean, bigger category. Now, you hear this. 
everything that made you unclean was not necessarily sin. See, there's some things outside the category of sin that made you unclean. Now, at the same time, everything that was sin in the Old Testament made you unclean. You see that? See that relationship there? There were things that were outside of sin that made you unclean. Things like eating pork, things like shellfish, were all, things like being a leper were all outside the category of sin but made you unclean. Ceremonial before God. It was God's way of saying, I want you to be a distinct nation among all the other nations. Therefore, don't do all these other things. Those were cleanliness issues. Sin issues are a tighter category. Does that make sense? So, so in, embedded into the clean category is a smaller category of sin. Everything in sin would make you clean, but not everything in the cleanliness category would necessarily be sin. Now, here's the second point. The New Testament informs what laws we are to keep and what laws we are to let go of. So in a very real sense, Jesus came to say, I fulfilled the law. I didn't abolish it, but I fulfilled it. So there's some things that are obviously passing away in that moment. There's some things that are applying in a different way now. So the New Testament informs this for us. So let's just take the shellfish and the pork kind of analogy for a second. In Acts 10, the Lord appears to Peter and he drops down a net with all of these animals that in the Old Testament would be considered unclean. And the Lord looks at Peter and says, hey, do you see all those animals? They're all good now. Have at it. Kill and eat. That's like a hunter's favorite verse right there. (laughs) Rise, kill, and eat, right? And so um, he is obviously saying there is something different now about these laws like shellfish, like pork, because he's looking at Peter and saying, You can now kill the pig and eat it. It's okay to do that. You can now eat the shellfish. You can now do all of those things. But when you turn to the New Testament, the ethic for sexual morality does not change at all. Okay, let me just give you some uh, for instances of this. And we'll start with Jesus. This is Mark chapter 10, verses six, seven, eight, and nine. He is being pressed on uh, divorce and remarriage. That was the issue, kind of the context of this. And and here, here he goes to address it. And that, by the way, some would say Jesus does not address homosexuality. And there is, a, there is a core of that that is true, a part of that that is true. Jesus did not in particular talk about homosexuality. Let me give you the reason why. It's because no first century Jewish person debated the ethic on homosexuality. Hear that. No first century Jew was asking the question, is that right or wrong? So he did not need to address it in particular. But it is, that is a partial truth to say he didn't address it. So he didn't address it in particular, but he did address it. Mark, 7 is, or Mark 10 is a for instance in this. In verse 6, pressed on divorce, Jesus says, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. There are two ways to affirm God's design for marriage. One way, and Jesus could have done this, he could have gotten every aberration of marriage, every distortion of marriage and said, let's line them all up. That one's wrong. That one, nope, 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 nope. And this one's right. That's one way to do it. The other way to say the exact same thing is to take what is right, to go all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2 if you're Jesus, and to take what is right and say, here's the definition of marriage. Now, both of those two are doing the exact same thing. If I wanted to convince you, if there was 20 people on stage, 20 ladies on stage, and I wanted to convince you which one was my wife, Laura, I could do that in one of two ways. I could look up on stage and say, that one's not it, that one's not it, 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 19 times, and leave Laura on stage. Or I could just look at Laura and say, it. Either way is saying the exact same thing, though. 
When Jesus is holding up the Genesis 1 and 2 definition of marriage, he is saying something about every distortion of marriage. So it's not exactly true to say he did not address homosexuality. So Jesus reaffirms the Genesis 1 and 2 definition in Mark and other places. Paul also addresses this issue. And we'll start in Romans chapter 1. This will be on the screen for you. In Romans 1, verses 26 and 27, Paul says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Um, Those who want the Bible to affirm homosexuality will say a couple of things about this passage. Here's the first thing. And this is the core argument that is made from those who want the Bible to actually affirm that homosexuality is is okay. Um, the, The core argument is it is a different kind of homosexuality that we're talking about. So what we're talking about today, homosexuality, and what they were talking about then are two different things. So what we are talking about today is a committed same, you know, same-sex relationship for all of our life. But what they were talking about then is fundamentally different. What they were talking about then is not a committed sort of relationship that was a mutual love. What was happening then is um, homosexuality was always viewed as excessive lust. So everyone was thought back then, they would say, that's weird, um, would, they, they would say everyone back then was, was heterosexual, but some were just wild and promiscuous and therefore they would go outside of their heterosexuality and, and, and do homosexual acts. So this is what everyone us was heterosexual and now they would just in, in excessive moments go outside of that. And on top of that, they would say all forms of, of homosexuality in you know, first century and beyond were exploitive in nature, man-boy relationships, master-slave relationships, that sort of a thing. Now my pushback to that goes like this it is well documented that that is partially true. Much of the homosexuality in the New Testament was excessive. Much of it was exploitive. That is in part two. But in no way, shape, or form was that their only understanding of homosexuality. It's not as if the, the, the people in the first century had no context for a mutual, consensual, long-term, faithful um, sort of relationship um, over same-sex lines. They also had that framework in the first century. Now, the second pushback into this passage, Romans 1, is the issue of what is natural and unnatural. And their pushback would go like this. People who want the Bible to affirm homosexuality um, would be that unnatural and natural is a subjective issue based on your personal preferences. In other words, when Paul is talking about what is natural and unnatural, if you're a heterosexual and your natural desire would be for a person of the opposite gender, it would then be unnatural for you because your, your desires go to the same, you know, opposite gender. It would be unnatural for you then to, to become a homosexual. Just like if your desires were for the same gender, it would be unnatural for you to develop a relationship with a person of the opposite gender. Do you see how that works? So they're taking that idea of natural and unnatural and, uh, and, and saying that is a personal subjective issue, not a defined by creation issue. And I, I mean, my, my pushback to, to that sort of a, of a logic would go like this. I think if you read that Romans 1, you have to do gymnastics with Romans 1 to make it say anything then. Paul is saying that homosexual, like, you know, practicing homosexuality is, a, is an illustration for idolatry. It's an illustration of rebellion against God in that grounded in Genesis 1 and 2, it goes against nature, against God's created order. 
I think you have to do gymnastics to make it say anything other than that. Now we get to, uh, to one other passage. Um, I would love to read 1 Timothy 1, um, 8 through 11, but for the sake of time, I'm gonna leave that out. And I'm gonna read uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. They're basically saying something very similar. So let me just go to 1 Corinthians. This will be on the screen for you. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral. And by the way, there's a lot more on this list than homosexuality, right? The sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. As such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Now the debate over this passage um, is really centering on one phrase, the phrase, men who practice homosexuality. And there's two words that make up that phrase. They're gonna be on the screen for you. These two words make up, there they are. These two words make up uh, this phrase, men who practice homosexuality. The first word literally means to be soft. In classical literature, it was used to, uh, to talk about effeminate men. Um, and oftentimes the younger or passive partner in man-boy relationships or to refer to male prostitutes. The context of 1 Corinthians 6 would suggest that Paul is talking about the passive partner in that word in a homosexual relationship. Then you get the other word. It's a compound word that, that is basically saying male, that's one part of the word, and bed or male and intercourse. It's, it's those two words together. And linked to the first word, it's pretty clear that Paul has in mind, first word is covering the passive partner. Second word is covering the active partner, both partners in a homosexual um, relationship. Now the pushback to, to that goes like this. You don't know the definition of those two words. Paul coined the term, so you don't know what he means by those two words. Now my pushback to that pushback would be to say this. Though that Paul did coin the term. He's the one that kind of came up with those two terms to describe homosexuality. And those two terms go directly back to Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20. Those two terms in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, those two terms are in Leviticus 18 and in Leviticus 20. He essentially read Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20 and pulled those two words out and then used that in the New Testament. It's Paul, again, affirming Genesis chapter 1 that's affirmed in Leviticus chapters 18 and chapter 20. Okay, now let me just finish and conclude with this in, in this section, and then I want to move on and, and spend just a few minutes with you thinking about how our church can respond. It is impossible to, to go to any place in the Bible and affirm that the Bible is talking in a positive way about homosexuality. You cannot do it. The, the only argument you can make about that is that the Bible does not say what it seems to say. That's the best argument you can make is I know it says that upon face value, but that is not what the Bible is trying to say in every place that the Bible is trying to say it. That, that's the only argument that can be made. And especially for the millennials in the room, man, I, I wanna just remind you, there is more at stake with this issue than personal fulfillment for a human being. There is more at stake than just that. The issue at stake in this issue, you know, with, with this particular issue of homosexuality is not personal fulfillment. The issue is, can I stake my life upon the Bible as the authoritative word of God? Or can I not do that? That's the real issue going on here. 
Can I go to the Bible and depend on the Bible to show me what God's ethic is in God's kingdom that will lead to human flourishing? Or do I have to depend on something other than the Bible to show me that? That's the core of the issue. That's the, that's the, the biggest part of the issue. Now, listen to Luke Timothy Johnson. He is a New Testament professor who believes in same-sex marriage. He's a proponent of it. Now, listen to what he says, because here's what I appreciate about him. He is honest about the issue. Now, listen to what he says. This should be on the screen for you. He says, I think it is important to state clearly that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of Scripture. Now, that is honest, he is saying that I cannot go to the Bible and make the Bible affirm what the Bible does not affirm. So he's saying, I, I want to say this straightforward. I reject the straightforward commands of Scripture. And rather than, than going with them, I appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex union can be holy and good. And what exactly is that authority? We appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience. Now hear that. That is the issue. It's can I trust the Bible to show me what God's will is for my life or do I need to find something other than the Bible to trust? Maybe I should go to my experience and allow how I feel and my experience in the world for that to be my authoritative standard in my life. That's the core of the issue. And listen, we all feel that in our life. This is not just a sexuality issue. There's not one of us in here who don't want to bend what the Bible says because of our experiences and what we feel and desire to make the Bible say something that would fit what we want and desire more. We all experience that. And this is one of those particular issues where the Bible, and, and in particular God is saying, man, trust me in this. Trust that I know what leads to human flourishing even if you can't feel that, even if your experience goes directly against that. Trust me in this. Bank your life on my authoritative word. Now, I want to finish, use the rest of our time to, to just chat with you for a few minutes about, as a church, what does it look like for us to respond better than the church has traditionally responded to this issue? What does it look like for us to have biblical convictions and at the same time, a tender heart, a compassionate heart? What does it look like for both of those things to be true? Now, I want to shape our response um, by shaping it around the good news of Jesus. Our response to this issue and every issue should be shaped by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The good news, it should be shaped by that in profound ways. And by the way, let me just um, cite him really quickly. I listened to this um, back in April. A guy named Christopher Yawn is a homosexual. He's a Christian. He's done a lot of work in this issue. I mean, he was so helpful in, in unpacking how church can be helpful that I really just wanna give you what he said and I'm praying that it will be helpful for you too. So let me give you four ways that I think a church can be more helpful, what the church needs to be more helpful in this issue. Number one, we need the right heart, which means we have to be very careful of self-righteousness. This particular issue is unlike most other sins and how prone it is to leading people towards self-righteousness. And here's the reason for that. If you're a heterosexual in the room and you do not deal with same-sex attraction, you don't struggle through same-sex attraction, if that's you, it is very easy to look at another person that is struggling with same-sex attraction and feel a sense of that person is weird. That, that just doesn't even register on my like, scale of how sin works in my life. 
And because of that, you are so prone to begin to look down your nose as if you have reached a higher level of sanctification as they have. Because you don't deal with that and they do. And that would be a grave mistake if you go there. It's one of the reasons that inside the church, homosexual sin has been talked about in very unhelpful ways. In ways that heterosexual sin is very seldom ever talked about. It's one of the reasons it's put in a separate category. It's one of the reasons that the church has, has maimed many people in the, in the LGBT community. It's one of the reasons that all of that has happened is this blatant self-righteousness in the hearts of people. Now, I want you to think on this for a minute and think about this statement in particular. The more distance you feel between yourself and the capacity for any sin, any sin that you ever come across, the more distance you feel between yourself and the capacity for that sin, the more out of touch you are with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The more distance you feel between yourself and any sin that ever gets named, that the more you have a difficult time finding commonality with that person, that the more you have a sense to put distance in between yourself and them as if you are beyond that sort of sin, the more out of touch you are with your desperate need for grace. The more out of touch you are with the depravity in your own heart. I love how John Owen says this, an old Puritan pastor. He said, the seed of every sin is in every human heart. And can I just tell you, until you really feel that, the seed of every human sin is in every human heart, you probably shouldn't confront or talk to a person about their homosexuality. You're probably gonna do a lot more harm than you are good. So can I just apply this for a moment? I just can't help but believe there are many in the room who need to repent of blatant self-righteousness in this issue. And if we're ever going to be a church who responds well to those who are dealing with this issue, it is the prerequisite to that is us repenting of our self-righteousness for us to know deep down in our soul that we're capable of any sin. There is no human being that we will ever look at like this to them. We are looking straight eye to eye with every human being regardless of what their sin issue is. Secondly, if, if you're in here and you have struggled with same-sex attraction, I want to, on behalf of our church and ch the church at large, just say I'm sorry for where we have held biblical convictions without compassion and in doing so really damaged and hurt you. If that's you in the room, man, I just wanna, I wanna just look you in the eye and say, I am so deeply sorry for that. That's not representing Jesus. It's not being Jesus to you. It's being a Pharisee to you, of which I'm very sorry that we have done that. The second thing we need, we need to be consistent. And consistency comes in a couple of different areas. Here's one area that we need consistency in change. We are all in an already not yet tension. If you're a Christian, you, you feel the already and not yet of being a Christian. Like when you look at your life, you can look at your life and think, man, the Lord really has changed things about me. I mean, what I was before I was a Christian, what I am now, the Lord's really changed things in me. But at the same, and that's the already, that is the inbreaking of the kingdom of God in your life right now. But there is a not yet to all of our lives in this room. Who in this room, if, you're, if you've been walking with God for any length of time, would not look at your life and say, yes, there has been some measurable growth, but at the same time, I'm still struggling with such deep things I just can't get over. I mean, it's over and over and over, these same desires, these same issues, falling to these same temptations. What is wrong with me? Who cannot say that in this room? 
We all can, right? So, so we're all stuck in this already not yet tension. Yes, the Lord's doing things in us, but we all want so much more. Now, here's what that means for us as a church. We need to encourage people with the possibility of change, even with something, something as deep and complex as same-sex attraction. We need to encourage people with the possibility of change. I'm just thinking about people like Rosaria Butterfield, Jackie Hill Perry. We need to, to hold out hope that that can actually happen in their story too. But at the same time, we need to acknowledge that for many, same-sex attraction will be a lifelong struggle. Now hear that. Just like we would apply it to the alcoholic or whoever else that, yes, we're seeing measurable change, but yes, we still have all of these deformed desires in us. We need to apply that same thing to the issue of same-sex attraction. That yes, Jesus may give some measurable victory where they could actually even enter into a heterosexual marriage one day. But for many, they will deal with same-sex attraction all of their life. Now hear me on this. That doesn't mean they're not growing as a Christian. What if we applied that to your life? It doesn't, like, to think of change only in, the, in kind of the, the realm of, it only means that you're not desiring bad things anymore. If that's change, we're all in trouble, Right? See, what, what change is, change can be that, but change is not just the absence of temptation and wrong desires. Change is also, I have these desires, but I'm siding with Jesus against these desires. See, that can be changed just as much as I no longer desire this. For many of us, in many areas of our life, what change is gonna look like for the rest of our life is, man, I feel things that I shouldn't feel. And in this moment, I'm gonna side with Jesus and against what I feel. Listen, if that's happening in your life, hear me, that is change. That is change. We need to apply consistency in terms of heterosexuality. The Bible does not give an unqualified stamp to heterosexuality is good. That's not how the Bible talks about it. All heterosexuality is not good. Heterosexuality is not the goal of the Bible, right? In the Bible, heterosexuality and homosexuality can both be bad. And listen, homosexuality and heterosexuality are not the opposite of one another. Do you know what the opposite is between or, or homosexuality and heterosexuality? The opposite of both of those is holy sexuality. That's the opposite. The opposite is holy sexuality. It's allowing Jesus and his ethic to invade our life, whether we're struggling with same gender attraction or if we're heterosexual. It's allowing the ethic of Jesus to come into that that's, that's holy sexuality. That's the opposite of both heterosexuality and, and homosexuality. Now, holy sexuality leaves two options for every person in the room. Holy sexuality leaves these two options. If married, defined by Genesis 2, you are to be faithful to your, to your spouse of the opposite gender. That's one option, marital faithfulness. Here's the other option. If we're not married, if we're singled, a complete faithfulness through abstinence. Those are the two options of holy sexuality. The Bible doesn't give, the ethic of Jesus and the kingdom of God doesn't give a third option in there. It's if we're married, we're faithful to our spouse of the opposite gender. If we're single, we, we're faithful to Jesus through complete and, and total abstinence. That's the ethic of the kingdom. That is holy sexuality. So we need to be consistent in how we talk about homosexuality and heterosexuality. And lastly, we need to be consistent in how we talk about singleness. We started this set of sermons off about singleness. For one reason, I wanted us to be able to celebrate singleness in a way that our church has not done that historically. And secondly, I wanted that to be the framework from which we can now deal with homosexuality. 
See, if, if singleness is, if, if marriage is heaven and singleness is hell, we shouldn't be, um, we shouldn't be surprised that someone who is single feels like a death sentence is pronounced over their life, Right? But that is not how the Bible talks about singleness. The Bible talks about singleness as extraordinary, as getting unique blessings from God. The Bible talks about it as an extremely great life, like that. And listen, if you're single, dealing with, you know, same gender attractions or, you know, heterosexual attraction. If you're single, I just want you to hear this. We need you to be faithful to singleness in our church. We need that. Without you being faithful to, to, the, to the call that God has put on your life right now, you know, in this season of your life, without you being faithful that this church will not be all that God has called it to be. Uh, thirdly, we need compassion. We need to be compassionate. Now just hear me on this, and I, I want you to make sure you are in with me right here on this. The reason that most of those who deal with same gender attraction, same sex attraction, do not feel safe talking about that in the context of the church is because the church has crucified compassion on the altar of their convictions. Historically, the church of Jesus Christ, and this is a black eye on the church of Jesus Christ. Historically, the church of Jesus Christ has not been a safe place for people who deal with same gender attraction. And we could go wider than that, people who deal with all sin. It has not been a safe place for that. And until that changes, we are failing our brothers and sisters who are dealing with same gender attraction. One of the, uh, one of the, the big, I've done so much reading on this in the last year, it's ridiculous. One of my favorite books has been Rosaria Butterfield's book, uh, Secret uh, Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And in that book, she, she, uh, she shares the, her conversion. She was a lesbian professor at Syracuse, a tenured professor. Um, and she was teaching in the world of, of you know, lesbianism, uh, just that whole world of things. So she is like all the way into that community. And in the moment of her conversion, of which she describes as a train wreck, which I love that, she talks about that, that process of realizing the ethic of the kingdom does not allow for, for her to be a lesbian. And that, that slow, hard, painful journey out of that community. And one of the, the stories she uh, talks about is when she kind of, came above ground and saying that I'm no longer going to choose, you know, kind of practice a lesbian lifestyle. When she said that, she had one of her students walk into her office just as angry as angry could be. I mean, just ready to go to war with her. And he, he walks in angrily and he says this, how do you know you are no longer a lesbian? How do you know that, Rosaria? How, how do you know that you're no longer a lesbian? And she talks about just all the emotions in her in that moment and basically her saying, I have no idea what to even say to him. I don't know how I know. I don't even know if I am yet. I don't know. And then she finally composes herself and she says this, how do you know that you're a gay man? And she goes on to explain this moment. She says, like a birthday balloon deflated by a pinprick, he staggered and collapsed into my office chair, slumped over and with tears in his eyes, he fell silent for what seemed like a long time. And then he said this, Rosaria, I'm a gay man because the LGBT community is the only safe home I have. As the church of Jesus Christ, we should be ashamed at that. We should be absolutely ashamed of that. Ask yourself the question, would you be a safe person 
for another human being to talk about those sort of struggles with? Would you be safe? Could you empathize? Could you look them in the eye and feel compassion? Let me give you two, two ways that I think we can proactively grow in this as a church. One is we should expect people to struggle with same gender attraction in every crowd, in every group of people we're ever in. You should expect it if you're a mom and a dad in your family, you should expect it. In your group of friends, you should expect it. Among your workplace, you should expect it. In your home group, you should expect it. You should expect it everywhere you go. And you know what you'll do if you expect it everywhere you go? We'll stop doing dumb things like telling a joke that has the punchline with a gay person in it. Do, do you know what you're doing in that moment? You are broadcasting to the world and everyone around you, your sons and daughters, your home group, the people you're living, you're broadcasting, I am not a safe place to talk about those things. I'm not gonna be safe for you. You're, you're ensuring that they are gonna go find a different place for safety for that. Now, here's the second thing that I think you can do is you can proactively create safe environments. And let me just give you the, the way that I think you can do that. And I'll just illustrate it with what I'm trying to do with my kids right now. I've got a seven, five, and a four-year-old. And listen, I don't know what their struggles are gonna be. It could very well be that one of my kids is gonna grow up struggling with same gender attraction. I don't know, maybe that's true for them. But can I tell you what I wanna proactively do? I wanna proactively create a safe place for them to be able to struggle with those things in the context of our family. And here's the way I try to proactively do that. I don't go to them and say, hey, if, you, if you're struggling with this, why don't you come and, no, that's not the way. Here's the way I think you can do that. Last night, I got down on my knees in, in my living room and got all three of my kids around me. And so I got Hannah, Caleb, and Eva sitting right in front of me. We had a little family meeting moment. And I looked at them and I said, Caleb, Hannah, and Eva, I want you to know that you're a gift from God to me. I and there's nothing you're ever gonna do or feel or think or say that's gonna make me love you less or more. Nothing ever that you're gonna do or think or say. So regardless of whatever happens in your life, I want you to know I'm gonna love you. And you know, I think if we created environments and moments like that among our friends and our home groups, that people would feel a sense of safety when they're dealing with those deep, hard struggles. Isn't it hard to talk about the deep things in you? It's hard to talk, talk about those things. And if we're not proactively reassuring people that regardless of what your issues are, we're gonna be there. People are not going to feel safety in those moments. See, for, for all of us to change, we need gospel, safety, and time. We need all three of those. But hear me, you can give as much gospel and as much time that you want, and if you don't provide safety, it's never gonna happen. We have to become a safe place for people struggling with all sorts of sin, same-sex attraction being one of those. And lastly, and I'll just finish here, we need to be complete. Let me just point your attention back to 1 Corinthians 6. We need to be complete. There are two parts to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Here's part one. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That is the bad news of the Bible, that our sin has forever separated us from God. And if you can't find yourself on that list, you're blind. Our sin has separated us from God. But listen, that is not all of the gospel. 
That is just the bad news of the gospel. And so often, we stop with the bad news. We can't stop with the bad news. Here's the great news of the gospel. And such were some of you. Come on. That is the grace of Jesus. Such were some of you, but you were washed, all of your sin covered by the blood of Jesus. You were sanctified. When God looks at you, he sees the perfect record of a son. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. We need to make sure we're a church who's got that news down. Amen? Let's pray together. We just want to give you a moment here to allow the Lord to speak to you. And, and I, I want to be very clear as we wrap up today that if, if you struggle and are struggling with same-sex attraction, I want you to know that our church family desires to be a safe place for you. And I personally, as one of your pastors, would love to learn from you, would love to hear your story, and, in, and even if you have sit here and listened to this message in every one of those places where you've said, you just don't understand and don't know, I probably don't. And I, I am willing to sit down with anyone in our church family dealing with this issue, and I would love to learn what I don't understand and what I don't know. And I'm asking that you would be a person who would trust us with something so deep in you, so scary in you, that you would trust us enough to let us journey and walk beside you in that. I'm asking that you do that. You would, you, would, you would trust us enough to open that up to us and let us love you in the middle of it. And if you're here today and, and you're a, a Christian, you're, you're in Jesus, maybe self-righteousness just needs to be, I mean, just a stake driven right to the heart of that as you repent from that today. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, alerts us all to this great reality. Regardless of how bad our sin is, in Jesus, we can be washed, cleansed, sanctified, justified. He's just adding one word to, an, to another, trying to convince us that we can be made new in Jesus. And if you've never experienced that, man, what a great day for that. That would mean you turning from your sin and in faith, you throwing your life upon Jesus. And if this morning needs to be that decisive moment in your life, we would love to celebrate that with you and, and journey, to start that journey with you. Under your seat, you can grab that, that card, the black portion, fill that out and check that box, establishing a relationship with Jesus. And we would love to hear about your journey. So Father, would you help us? Would you help us become a church that's safe? Lord, a church that has biblical conviction paired with biblical compassion in ways that would be helpful. Lord, whatever it takes, make us into that, that sort of people. It's in your good name we ask. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.